Greetings, friends, and welcome back, or welcome to the High Flyers Podcast. The show, the curious ones, the ones that want to learn to fly high from individual spreading value in a variety of industries and values, to learn about their sunrise, their magic moments, their hustle, and a load of golden nuggets and insight to help you be 1% better every day. And I'm your host, Vidit Agarwal. You know, what I have learned is that if you reach out to people and say, I really admire and respect what you do, um, and I'd love to learn more about that, most people say yes. Um, People are generous often when you ask them. And the other thing I've learned is to sometimes uh, offer them something. So it might be something that you can do for them or a connection that you can make for them or something like that. So it doesn't seem like just a one-way street. I think that's the other thing that I've found really works. That's Kelly Reardon and this is episode 30. Wow, 30 episodes. Thank you so much for all the support today. It's been beyond my expectation. If there's one action I can ask for, it'd be to please rate the show on Apple Podcasts and leave a review to help others find us. In this episode, Kelly shares our bringing, learning the importance of hard work early on and having the support of her parents and siblings with the desire to go into music or radio. We talk about an early break, learnings being in the music industry, which seem very glamorous on the outside, but perhaps not as enjoyable doing it. The concept of learning, failing and learning. Spending time at Oxford University, working for writers, learning from smart people around the world. Personal setbacks, including an injury that affected her ability for a period of time. Kelly shares her first-hand insights on podcasting, finding the vision for the platform while the ABC before the iPhone, what's ahead for podcasting, and her own venture recently, and is starting a podcasting consulting and production company, Deadset Studios. Kelly, welcome to the show. It's episode 30. I can't think of anyone better than someone who knows the podcasting space well. So welcome to the show. Well done. Congratulations on 30 episodes. I think a lot of people start a podcast thinking, oh, this will be pretty easy. I'll just talk to some people and then they work out. It's so much work. So good on you for getting to 30 episodes because there are a lot of podcasts who don't make it past five episodes. Thank you. Yeah, and no, I've definitely been inspired by someone like yourself. You've done some really cool stuff in the podcasting space, which we'll touch on later on in the episode. Um, it, it might be worth, Kelly, to just start off with a bit of background on yourself. There might be some listeners who may not be as familiar with your journey. Um, so can you give a bit of perspective on who you are and where you are in life today? Yeah, so I'm Kelly Reardon. I am the director of a company called Deadset Studios. It's a fairly new company that I established in the middle of the pandemic in 2020, and it's a podcast consultancy and production house. Um, My background is both radio and podcast, and the majority of my career was spent at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, lovingly known as the ABC, and I spent a lot of time as a producer. I've been a reporter and on-air host. Um, I managed radio stations for a while there and I came into podcasting very early um, and eventually built uh, a podcast team at the ABC. And so I had been responsible for making um, some of Australia's greatest podcasts over the last few years, things like Conversations, 
Ladies, We Need to Talk, The Pineapple Project, The Unravel True Crime Strand, so shows like Snowball, um, as well as some comedy shows that you might know like Judith Lucy, Overwhelmed and Dying. Um, And it's been a fantastic journey for me in radio. It's something that I always wanted to do from a young age when I did work experience at CFM on the Gold Coast when I was about um, 15. So I've been so privileged to work in the audio space. Mm, very cool. Well, well, let's start off with that beginning phase in your sunrise, as I call it. Um, what was that like for you? What was the what were some of your passions growing up, and what was the influence of family? Yeah, I have a great family. So I'm uh, in a family of six, four kids, and um, my mum and dad were always really encouraging of us all, and we've all gone in slightly different directions, but certainly um, always encouraged to sort of follow our passion. Um, My parents are a little entrepreneurial, I would say, you know, at different times had their own um, small businesses and then uh, moved away from that and worked in more established organisations. But I think they've got just a little bit of get up and go that hopefully rubbed off on me. And um, and so growing up for us, it was sport, it was music. Um, all of us kids were involved in arts in some way. Um, my sister's gone on to become a sound engineer. Um, my brother's always played in rock bands. And so I was quite heavily involved in music growing up. And so I really wanted to either be in radio or in the music industry. Um, And I ended up sort of starting in radio, then moving into the music industry for a period of time. And then I kind of came back to radio. Um, But certainly we were encouraged. You know, I was a a good student. I was sort of a straight A student um, into lots of things, debating and theatre and music and playing hockey and all of those things. So just a very standard upbringing in in, uh, suburban Australia. Mm. And and would you say that entrepreneurial spirit was something that you took on from an early age in terms of trying different things? Because you did mention you had a lot of passions and you were one of the smarter kids in school, so to speak. Do you think that entrepreneurial spirit helped you have a bit of belief in yourself where you're like, if I tried and I fail, my parents won't tell me off because I can do it again? (laughs) I've reflected on this a lot more in the last year since running my own business um, because prior to that I pretty much have always worked for a large organisation in a salaried position so it's a complete change Mm. of scene for me. But I guess as I've reflected on it, um, I've thought about how my parents just give things a go um, and they've taken a few risks at different periods of time. My dad was actually a solicitor, so had his own legal practice, but then they went in different directions and did all sorts of interesting things like run indoor cricket centres in the 1980s when that was in vogue. So I think what rubbed off on me is just this sense that give something a go and my parents weren't caught up in you have to go to uni and you have to climb the corporate ladder and you have to become a doctor. They, they were very relaxed about just what follow your passion and do what you want to do. But I think what rubbed off is they were driven, they're hardworking people. That certainly is something that I carry. Um, and, you know, perhaps not having the pressure to do a particular thing, like follow my dad into law. In fact, he was the opposite. He was like, oh, gosh, don't do that. (laughs) Um, Mm. Probably formed a little part of me early on. And certainly I I definitely always knew that they were proud of us all. Um, 
I don't know that they necessarily said it in those words, but you absolutely got like they were on the sideline of every hockey game and they came to every performance at school and, you know, so you knew that you were supported. And I think that's something now that I've got kids I think is really important. I watched an interview with Paul Keating, the former treasurer, once, Mm -hmm. and he talked about how much his, particularly his mother and his grandmother, just constantly filled him with this sense that he could do anything. And I think, um, you know, that that carries you a lot of places in life. Mm, Absolutely. And I I know you in one of the other interviews you talked about being in the state school system and that made you want to essentially push on and, and do it yourself. That, that I think resonates with me and a lot of listeners because particularly in today's world where there's so much noise and competition, you've sort of got to carve your own path sometimes. And I think people jump on the journey with you. Did you find that was something you thrived on early on? Yeah, I mean, again, I was fairly academic, but I was in a school that wasn't very academic. Um, but that kind of just made me try harder or work harder, funnily enough. Um, I just thought, well, no one else is going to do it for me. I've got to do it myself if I want to get into university. You know, I'm not at some big prestigious private school where people are going to push me and it's all about who you know. You know, I didn't know anyone. I was just a state school kid from the Gold Coast. Um, Mm. So that sense of do the work, you know, I've carried that my whole life, sometimes to my detriment, but (laughs) mostly it's a great (laughs) trait of like, there's no shortcuts in life. You've got to do the work. And if you want to get places, you've got to work hard, you've got to put in, you've got to make connections and, you know, you don't get, you don't sort of get something for nothing in life. And so that's sort of the spirit I've taken into pretty much everything I've ever done. And did you have any, any people you looked up to early on and do you have any posters on the wall where you're like, I'd love to be like that person one day or they inspired you in terms of their behavior? Um, not really. Um, I I guess even though my parents sort of had businesses when I was younger, um, I wasn't really around. I certainly didn't feel like I was around a lot of business owners. Um, and you know, sort of certainly my uncles and aunts mostly worked in kind of government or um, the private sector in some way in salary positions. So I didn't really have a, a, a leader that I looked up to. But I guess I saw some. Um, women in that I might not have known, you know, politicians or sports stars or people doing great things in the arts that, you know, I thought, oh, wow, that that's a really interesting career or they, they conduct things in certain ways. I think as I've got older, I've certainly noticed that a lot more now when you think about some of the women that we've had in parliament or some of, of the women in business or people like Elizabeth Broderick, the former sex discrimination commissioner, like there's a lot more women to look up to certainly now than when I was a teenager that are operating, um, you know, and that's the shift that we've got around gender um, and we've still got a long way to go. But I think what I did look to is women doing interesting things and being creatively nourished in some way. Mm, Yeah, very interesting point. I think one of the things that's fascinating to me also, which you mentioned earlier, is your passion from a young age for radio and media. And you said it was in the early late 80s and early 90s when media was quite different to what it is today. What what was that like for you when you were in grade 11, 12, when you wanted to go into university and study journalism? Was there a path there available at that point or did you have to again carve something out and and sort of knock on a few doors to to get into that industry 
Look, it was a really interesting time for me to step into the media because it was right at the start of the internet in in a way. So yeah. I can still remember in my first year of university them introducing email and that being like a revelation and us talking about this thing called the information superhighway. And I was quite <laughs> um, interested in that from the outset. In fact, did a couple of assignments about um, you know, the first internet sites that were popping up. Um, and in fact, then when I finished university, my first role or my first full-time role at the ABC was with the news digital team. So putting the news on the internet and that team at that point was literally six or seven people, the national team. It's now a team of like be a hundred people in that team now. Um, so I got a taste of what the digital future could be really early on. Uh, and so I've always been into, you know, the internet and what, what digital transformation can do. But equally, I did have a passion for radio and I wanted to spend some time um, in radio. So I was lucky enough to, um, you know, I did a whole lot of work experience when I was at school and at university and eventually um, moved into a, a radio reporting job at the ABC. And it did take knocking on doors. Like you do have to persevere and it's really scary to do that, to cold call people um, and say, look, you know, I'm a university student and I'd love to do some work experience. Um, but again, I just... Uh, I guess I learned a lot about the principles of journalism by doing that, which is, you know, be persistent, um, be courteous, but uh, persistent and keep trying and don't take no for an answer, which is essentially what you do as a producer or journalist. Your job is to just keep chasing people until you get them and lock them in and get them on the radio. So I learned that pretty early. Um, and I think the other thing that was happening at the time that was really interesting was that sense of global media was just starting to happen. So that mm. um, that sense that you could read something on an internet site from America, um, you know, it was that era when that was kind of new and different, whereas, you know, now we take that for granted. Yeah, isn't it interesting how, like you just said, you had a, at that period in time you had to study a formal qualification and get your get your merits, so to speak, was now with podcasting and with social media, you can sort of sit in your bedroom and, and create content. I it's think that's a, quite a fascinating shift. It is. And, and back then, you know, if you wanted to watch a television show out of the US, it kind of came, you know, three weeks later. <laughs> you know? Oh, wow. So yeah. um, just like network television was very domestic and newspapers were things that you got on your front doorstep. And so you know, at that point in time, it was quite a revelation to be consuming media from around the world and suddenly being able to watch a video on the internet or read a newspaper article that was from the New York Times via the internet sort of just after it was published, you know, back then. It seems quaint now, right? But, but you know, it was kind of 96, 97 and that, that stuff was all very new then. And, and do you think that consumption of media, you had, your passion there was was true passion because I think in today's world where you got so many influences through social media, people's passions change on a daily basis where a certain interview or a certain celebrity might say something and suddenly there's a lot of interest in that space. But in the early 90s, I know that wasn't as prevalent, right? So even finding passion was probably not as driven by consumption of media, I'd say. It was probably more organic. 
Definitely. I mean, if, if you wanted to be a journalist, sort of with a capital J, um, you had a set of principles and, eth- well, you hopefully had some ethics and you had a, a kind of a way of working or a process and it wasn't quite so reliant on you having some big social media following. So it's a lot harder for people coming into the media these days because unfortunately, you know, scale does matter now. And so when you're casting a host for a podcast, you know, sometimes it can be someone unknown, but a lot of the time it has to be someone who does have a profile. And I think there's bad forms of influencer culture and good forms of influencer culture. I mean, someone who says to me, oh, I want to be an influencer. I mean, that's just, to me, that's just rubbish. Like if it's not a job, um, I mean, I know it's a job for some people, but it's not a thing to aspire to. I think if you frame it in a different way and you think I'm a subject matter expert in, you know, surfing um, and I'm going to build kind of out my brand around that, then I think that's kind of fine. But I think just starting with the I want to be an influencer is, is pretty tragic um, but I also think there are plenty of great influencers, someone like a Sarah Wilson from, you know, I Quit Sugar, mm-hmm. who is using her um, status and her um, brand is not the right word. She would hate that, but her um, ability to teach people about what they eat. And she's also environmentally conscious and she has a whole bent on not having too many possessions. And so she's trying to use those channels kind of for good and not evil. So I think there's ways that um, an influencer can bring good to the world, but, you know, those people have to have a pretty strong set of convictions in the first place. Now let's let's go back to your life journey and, and talk about some of those magic moments. Uh, this is probably my favourite part of this part of the segment because I think there's a lot of moments that people often look at from an external view and probably look at your profile and go, Kelly's only had success in her life and she's been on the journey up, but I'm sure there's been moments where you might have questioned yourself or you've had experiences where you've learned a lot. Um, are there any that stand out for you that were sort of asterisks on the way that you can share with the audience? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. I mentioned earlier I went and moved into the music industry at one point and I thought it would be a dream job to work in the music industry. So I worked for Warner Music and I also worked for EMI. And, you know, you get to do some pretty cool stuff. Like you don't pay for concert tickets and you're in the third row of a concert with the Red Hot Chili Peppers and you're driving them around to do their media interviews and it all sounds super glamorous. And I was in my early 20s doing this job and, you know, Yes, you get to meet cool people and you get quite a lot of sort of privilege um, around, you know, going to events and tickets and being backstage and all those things. But it actually was a terrible experience in a lot of ways because um, it took all the fun out of it for me. I think music was a passion and a love of mine and I thought wouldn't it be great to work, like make a living out of that. But when I was actually working in it, it's actually not that fun. You, you, Part of the job is to stand there at two in the morning and see some band you're not really interested in and it's Wednesday night and you'd rather be at home in bed. Um, <laughs> some of those artists are awful to work with. They're horrible people. They're cranky or they're on drugs. Um, so yeah. it, it was a lesson for me just around like some things should just be a personal passion and be separate to your job and you don't have to have a job you have to I think you have to have a job that you like and enjoy and it's a privilege if you do get to do that but I don't think it necessarily that has to be your sort of core passion so that was something that I learned and I moved back into the media instead and just um have had a much better time of it but I learned 
you know, I kind of hated working there, to be honest, and um, was pretty miserable. Like had that thing where you wake up on on or you kind of go to bed on Sunday night thinking, oh, God, it's nearly Monday and I really don't want to get up mm. and go to work tomorrow. But I met a lot of great people. I'm still friends with a lot of those people in the industry. I think I learned a lot, um, made good contacts, you know, nothing's wasted in life. And so from that perspective, it was kind of a good experience. And that's what I was going to ask around, how did you have clarity during that period? Because I think in my experience, often it's people that give you that clarity, right? Whether it's mentors or or even the opposite of people challenge you. Did you have any people that you sort of bounced ideas off and went, this is where I'm at, this is where my head's at, and I want to figure it out, but I'm not quite sure how? Um. Probably with that one, um, it probably was my now husband, who then was my boyfriend, um, who yeah. kind of had to listen to me moan on about, you know, not really enjoying this and him, you know, listening to the moaning, but then at one point just going, well, just get a different job. Like you don't have to do this. Um, and so once I had the opportunity to move back into the media, that was good. I mean, I wouldn't say I had... At that stage, I it was pretty early in my career. I was probably 22 and not, I hadn't really cultivated mentors yet. Um, there were a few people that, you know, I perhaps sought the counsel of at the time, but really it was one of those times where I just needed to make the decision for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've heard you talk about a, a, a phrase called fail learning. I think you talked about it on one of the other podcasts. Can you can you touch on that? Because that, to me, I, I love that phrase because I go exactly that's what life is. You've got to fail to learn. Yeah, um, you've got to learn because um, we're all just failing and learning. Like that is actually what life is. You don't, you know, I hope that I'll be a lifelong learner. You don't get to the age of 35 or something and put your feet up and go, well, I've figured it out now. And so I can just coast along. Like you are always learning and you are always in positions where you're being challenged or there's new information or you're having to work in a different way. Or you've got a different boss. Um, and so sometimes in doing that, you kind of just have to work things out on the fly and learn from that and muck some things up and get some things right and double down on those things. So one of the things that i really tried to instill in the culture of the teams that I worked with at the ABC, particularly around podcasting, because, you know, people think podcasting and radio is the same. It's actually not. It's quite different. Production um, sort of qualities are different. The way you structure your production process is different. The way you host is different. Like There's a whole lot of different things. So we were in some ways making up um, the culture and the way we would work as we went. And so one of the things I said was we're going to try some stuff and we're going to sometimes things will stick and sometimes they won't and that's the culture that we're going to have here. We're just going to learn from it and do things differently the next time. And I had a really great one, you know, mentor I have had um, who I worked with, uh, you know, probably a decade ago now, uh, a woman by the name of Justine McSweeney who taught me a lot of things that I needed to know about myself that, you know, I probably at the time didn't even realise I needed to know. And some of that was around being a lifelong learner. Some of it was about not being a perfectionist and not having ridiculously high standards all the time and, and also not having those high standards on everybody else in my team and, you know, just being a bit more human with the way you lead. And I think I owe her a lot and probably, again, at the time didn't realise it, but on reflection, so many of the things she's taught me about 
you know, we just have a go at something and we refine it and we learn. Um, you know, I still carry all of those things with me. Mm. One of the things I'd be curious to know is you, you've had a number of experiences that have been different, whether it's geographies or in the media landscape, seeing different shifts in in consumer behaviour. How, how have you, I guess, dealt with that? Is there, I imagine there's magic moments there where perhaps it's podcasting or I know you'd spend some time with the people in the UK and companies in the UK. How, how have you gone about the learning process there? Is there a way that you absorb information or is it again failing and learning on the job? I think I naturally seek out opportunities to learn. So I'm often making connections with people that, um, and, you know, this is probably where that mentor or relationship stuff starts to come in when you're more in your mid-career. I started to reach out to people globally that I could see were doing interesting things in the podcast space or in journalism uh, in general. And so I had a really fantastic opportunity to do a fellowship at the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism in Oxford um, in 2014. And it was to study how journalism ethics are changing in the digital age. And it's something I was quite passionate about, um, you know, both from applying that at the ABC and training staff members in how to apply that, but also just that, again, that um, I'm just really curious about how digital transformation is changing so many of the ways that we work and live. And so I was able to spend a semester there and, and write a paper and that meant that, you know, I could, I mean, it was amazing on so many levels because, you know, you're at Oxford University for crying out loud, like that in of itself is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're also, because of Reuters and their sort of position in the global journalism community, it really opens doors. So when you say you ring someone at the New York Times and say, hi, you don't know me, I'm from Australia, but I'm doing a paper on whatever for Reuters and I'd love to interview you about such and such. And they tend to say yes. And so I just got to pick the brains of really smart people, which is um, amazing. Um, And I think that, you know, that sort of outreach um, has held me in good stead. I, I did a similar thing. I almost went to Columbia University in New York the following year, uh, sort of for life reasons, things didn't quite work out. I had young children at the time and it just kind of didn't quite work out. But I was almost about to spend a a year at the Tau Centre for Digital Journalism, which is at Columbia University in New York. But in going over there, I also kind of got to go into WNYC, the big um, public radio station in New York, um, when I was kind of looking for apartments in New York, reached out Mm. to them and said, you're doing great stuff in podcasting and I'd really love to come and have a conversation with you about that. I want to learn about that. I'm really keen to start a team at the ABC that's doing that. And, you know, was lucky enough to end up sitting across the table, you know, from the man who sort of masterminded the whole WMYC Studios podcast arm. So, you know, what I have learned is that if you reach out to people and say, I really admire and respect what you do um, and I'd love to learn more about that, most people say yes. Um, People are generous often when you ask them. And the other thing I've learned is to sometimes uh, offer them something. So it might be something that you can do for them or a connection that you can make for them or something like that. So it doesn't seem like just a one-way street. I think that's the other thing that I've found really works. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think in my journey, I found if you ask the question, more often than not, the answer is yes. 
around if someone wants to catch up with you for a coffee or a podcast. Um, so yeah, I think for listeners, absolutely, particularly in today as well, where everything's on LinkedIn and social media, it's one message. It's all it probably takes to connect with someone, right? So yeah. Um, and Kelly, the, the flip side of that, some of those doubtful moments or periods you've had where maybe you haven't been able to quite collect everything and go, I know what I'm doing. Have there been any of those that you can maybe touch on? I know you spoke in our call prior to this about an injury you had and you how you dealt with that. Could you shed some light yeah, on that? Yeah, I mean, I had a really terrible kind of three, four-year battle with um, RSI, repetitive strain injury, which sounds sort of like not very serious, but in actual fact um, really took me into uh, a pretty dark place for a while there because I had I had been doing some audio editing and so you're doing a lot of mousing and a lot of keying when you're working on on that. And I just pulled up with very sore wrists and then kind of sore elbows and I just didn't really take good care of myself in those early signs because it was getting close to Christmas and I was like, I'll just push through till Christmas and then I'll get a break and whatever. And unfortunately for me, I sort of pushed through those early signs uh, where I really should have stopped and and listened to my body. And I ended up, you know, doing quite a lot of tendon damage and nerve damage and um, uh, ended up in a kind of a chronic pain loop and had a lot of therapy that didn't work and ended up having surgery and all sorts of things. But what it meant was I, I had to have a, a – there would – times when you're both in a lot of pain, which really affects your neural function, you know, the part of your brain that deals with pain is the same part that regulates emotions. And so it's no surprise that people in pain kind of get a little bit, you know, cross. Um, But Mm -hmm. I had trouble uh, with sort of articulating to the ABC at the time, kind of how serious it was and also how difficult I was finding it to not be in the workplace. Like I'm a person who's always worked and I do have a great sense of pride in my work and I love my work. And so the thought of being out of the workplace for a while really knocked me about and the injury got so bad I thought I might have to toss in my career because I literally couldn't use a keyboard or a mouse, which is what I do every day. Um, So it was really difficult. Um, you know, in hindsight, I should have realized that it was a short term, you know, taking a short term break in the grand scheme of a 30 year career is no big deal. But at the time, I just thought I can't take three months out off work like this is, you know, my career will go sideways and backwards. Mm. Um, and, you know, I probably didn't express to people well enough uh, how it was affecting me. And I just kind of didn't handle it very well. I just kept getting frustrated that I felt like I wasn't getting um, getting through to them. So it was a very tricky moment and it made me really reflect on like that burnout sort of aspect of working too hard, which essentially is what caused it. It's like, you know, sitting in an edit chair for 15 hours <laughs> isn't mm. great. So what it forced me to do and the silver lining now that I can look back at it all is, you know, that perfectionist kind of can't turn something in until it is really fantastic like that just doesn't serve you well and sometimes near enough is good enough especially my near enough my near enough mm-hmm. is more than good enough um so I've had to learn to not always go the extra mile and to conserve some energy and to you know listen to my body when uh things aren't going so well and I need rest and all those things so 
you know, it was difficult, but um, I'm really glad I got past it. I mean, it's still a challenge from time to time, but I manage it much better now. I think when you're in the acute phase of something like that, and it's also psychologically difficult, as well as physically difficult, uh, it's just a perfect storm for kind of, you know, um, it's just not a great time. But now I have a lot better strategies around managing it. Mm. And and it sounds like that was probably a magic moment that made you realize the life outside the four worlds of work, right? Would you say that that was a period that you look back on and post that you had more appreciation for life and you were like, okay, I don't want to just work, but I want to focus on friends, family experiences. Would that be a fair assumption? Um, I probably didn't. I probably should have, but I think I was too caught in, is my career over? <laughs> Yeah. Um, I was caught in a bit of a, like, you tell yourself this story, like, I'm I'm going to be sad. And I kind of was, to be honest, the, the trouble I had was it was right at a point where my leadership career was taking off. And so right at the time, like, I'd come back, I'd, I'd you know, had children, you've had time out of the workplace, you've worked yourself back up, which women have to do. Like, you, I have to say, you know, it, you have time out of the workplace, you're kind of starting again when you come back and it's really difficult. And then right at the time when there were some really great roles for me to take, I just physically couldn't take them. And so it was psychologically very difficult for me. It absolutely put me on a sideways track. And in the fullness of that time, of time, that sideways track has kind of still got me to where I needed to go. But in my mind at the time, it was a massive backward step because I'd been sort of tapped on the shoulder for a whole lot of um, quite good roles that I just actually couldn't take. And so in the psychology I had going on was, you know, it's over and I'll never get this shot again and all of those things. Um, you know, and I think for women who take some time out of their career and and again, I had a difficult time coming back into the workplace after having children. I was demoted from my role and moved into another role and I took a $20,000 pay cut and I worked at, um, you know, an organisation that supposedly is great with women in the workplace. So it's a very real thing that you feel like your career is going sideways or backwards. And so to have that happen sort of a second time was difficult for me. Um, you know, you learn from all of those things. And I think that the silver lining or the magic in all of that is, you know, I have got a really great sense of what's important to me and, um, you know, not wanting to sacrifice my health, um, it, you know, was important and to, to, you know, I've made some choices around where I live, um, which is in Brisbane instead of in Sydney. And that's meant a whole lot of roles that I couldn't take. But, you know, I have a great life here and I have a great family and my kids are happy here. And so there are choices that you make that, that make your life outside of work really great. And for me, that means, you know, a particular role I couldn't take. Well, so be it. There'll be another one down the track. Mm, well, thank you for sharing that. There's some some interesting personal learnings there. I think that will resonate with a lot of us tuning in, male or female, I hope. Um, and I know recently you've made the transition out of the so-called corporate salaried position into your starting your own venture. Mm. It, was there a magic moment there that led you to do that? And the reason I ask is because we've had a few guests on the show in the past that have had a very clear moment in the day or in, their, in a period of few months that made them realise that, okay, I need to make this shift and almost believe in myself and make this move out into my own venture. Was there a moment for you there that made you realise that? No, mine was much more chaotic. Okay. <laughs> um, look, 
I did occasionally think, oh, this whole podcast thing is exploding and what might it look like if I go out on my own and and do a podcast production company because that certainly has been exploding in the US and the UK. But I never really properly entertained the idea until a kind of a couple of things happened at once. Um, you know, the ABC was going through a redundancy round. Um, so there were questions about, you know, whether it kind of forced me to think about, did I want to stay or not stay? Um, I had been offered another job uh, running a podcast network. And so that job had come up. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, some other personal stuff was going on and we're in the middle of COVID. And so I kind of had to make some fast decisions and I just thought to myself, oh, you know, I'll never know if I don't give it a go and I'll always, you know, the ABC is the most wonderful place to work and I had a great team and I loved what I did and it will probably always be the best job I've ever had in some ways. But, you, I mean, life is for living and you have to take some risks sometimes and I just wanted to throw the dice and do something else and I didn't want to sit there for another 30 years kind of in the same organisation. I was like, I want to do different things and, again, it comes back to that learning. I think ultimately yeah. I felt like I'd grown out of my role a little bit and couldn't quite see where it would go next and so I thought, you know what, I'd like to play in a different podcast sphere. Um, and for me, a big part of the decision was to play a bit more in the global space because one of the things I can now do running my own podcast consultancy is, you know, I'm working with the BBC on a piece of work at the moment and I can work with, you know, production partners um, elsewhere in the world. And so that was really exciting to me. I have absolutely no idea how to run a business, so I've been <laughs> figuring that out on the go. Um, making a lot of mistakes. Like it's been the steepest learning curve I've had since I first went into the workforce, you know, as a 20-year-old. Um, I've had to learn a lot. I've made multiple classic mistakes, but I've learned from them and I won't make them again. Um, and kind of having fun making the mistakes sometimes too and going, oh, God, got that wrong. Good one, Reardon. Better do that differently <laughs> next time. Um but I'm also trying to be gentle on myself around that that's okay. Like I'm I'm probably, you know, I'm probably not going to have the same career path and work in this big organisation. You know, I'm going to be running a small company, but I'm able to work with different organisations now and brands and do a piece of training for an organisation where I get to go and see what they do. And that's really fun. So there's a lot of benefits to running your own business and being in control of your own schedule and, and sort of picking and choosing the projects that I work on and things that I would like to do. So it's been a nourishing um, exercise on that front because ultimately I can control, look, that that project there isn't really the right fit for me, but this thing over here is really exciting and I'm, I'm really loving hanging around these people who are super smart and I can do a piece of work, you know, with them um, from my bedroom, which is great. And, and I wonder if you could provide a lens of when you made that transition, what were the first few months like in terms of setting your vision and and sort of putting pen to paper because because I know in my experience when you work at big organizations there's processes structures and it's a well-oiled machine right but you're going from that into essentially a blank canvas yeah what was that period like like did you again have people that you reached out to and said these are some ideas and you bounced it off because I think to me and to our listeners starting your own venture can be very daunting how do you make that come alive like what were some experiences there um 
much more chaotic than in the ABC where I was actually quite well known for running a pretty tight process ship. Like we mm. had documents up the wazoo, you know, well well understood processes and procedures that meant that we could work efficiently, you know, production schedules and budgets and documentation on how to do things and training manuals and all of that. It's been the complete opposite running my own business because there's kind of just me. Like I work with some independent contractors and people that I pull on to projects, but ultimately the core of the business is still just me. And I kind of landed into doing it somewhat unexpectedly uh, without much planning because I thought I was taking this other job and then made a last minute decision. So I kind of landed and went, oh, okay, I better start a company. And then I just ran full pelt at trying to drum up some work. So I didn't stop to put processes and procedures in place. And if I had my time again, I probably would take a little bit more time and I didn't stop and have a break after, you know, working really hard for a long time either. But you also have to capitalize on the momentum and the worth you have in the market. So for me, it was sort of like, I have to jump out there and people need to know what I'm doing so that I can pick up the work. I've slowly started to bring a bit more process and procedure into what I'm doing and have surrounded myself with a couple of smart people now um, who can help me out. But I think that's small business though. In small business, you just have to roll your sleeves up and do everything. You're the IT department. You're the accounts department. You're the legal department. Like Mm. I, you know, I used to have all those people on tap at the ABC. I'd just ring the legal department and get some help with a contract. Or, you know, I had a production manager and and a production assistant who would pull things together for us and people, executive producers who do the budgets that I would oversee now I'm doing all of the things all of the time. So it it's difficult, but I think technology um, to some degree helps. You know, we have that automation now, but I guess I haven't fully exploited what that looks like in the way some startups do where they've got AI assistance and all those mm. kind of groovy <laughs> things. Um, but I'm getting there. No, fantastic. I know having worked in a few startups, I think the level of fulfillment is a lot higher than a job, right? And and I think to add to those lists, you're probably also the garbage collector where you're throwing garbage away yourself. So <laughs> I did vacuum uh, the floor of the office this morning, yes. <laughs> exactly. That's probably a level of humility there as well and learning. So uh, no, well done. I think it's an exciting journey you're on and I've definitely listened to a number of episodes, which I'll encourage all the listeners to tune in. Uh, it's called the Curveball Podcast, and I think it's on all the podcast platforms. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, Curveball's yep. available in all the apps, and there's also a, a LinkedIn newsletter that I do about Curveball. It's all about leaders, and it's leaders who've faced a challenging time or, or have had a test of their leadership at some point. Something's come out of nowhere, and they've had to deal with it. And we've had some extraordinary guests be quite vulnerable, actually, with some of their toughest times, because I think we look at leaders sometimes and think it all looks great and they've you know they're running this they've got this big salary and they're running this amazing you know organization or corporation oh, this cool startup that's just landed a hundred million dollars in VC funding but actually there's a whole lot of work that goes into that that we don't see or a whole lot of struggle or endless problems that led up to that point um, so I think what's great about the podcast is sure we're looking at those successful moments but we're we're digging into the tricky moments and the dark moments and the times you have to rally and sort of push on when it's difficult. No, absolutely. And I think that's probably the beauty of media today where it's decentralized and you can sort of run your own show, right? So, and you probably don't have the same level of scrutiny that uh, a TV show on, on like 
a mainstream media channel does. So um, now if, we, if you're just talking in hustle, um, I think one of the things that I'm fascinated about, and you touched on it briefly there is, and I look at this from being in the business world myself, but now doing a podcast is the balance between creativity and running the business of it. How, how did you find that at the ABC, particularly, I think, when you found the podcasting space? And I know from having watched a number of interviews and articles, you were one of the first in Australia, at least, who had discovered podcasting and saw a vision for it. How did you balance that in a company like the ABC where it is all about numbers and budgets and finances, but then you're trying to be creative and build this new platform? Yeah, so I was lucky in that I got into podcasting in 2005, which was very early because no one had an iPhone at that point in time. But I was producing conversations with Richard Feidler, still Australia's biggest podcast. And um, I just saw an opportunity to post that audio to the internet. Uh, And I was lucky enough to find a colleague who knew some basic HTML code and we kind of just hacked it up in the corner and worked out how to do it. And of course, now, if you want to get a podcast up at the ABC, there's a whole commissioning process as there should be but um, back then it was sort of the wild west and we were just experimenting and this is that good thing about just try something and learn from it Um, so we did that and the show just grew and grew and uh, as the show went national because at that point in time it was only going out in Queensland um, the podcast grew and it just made me really interested in the opportunity around audio that doesn't just happen on the linear radio. So I kind of fast forward really another decade Um there was a moment in podcasting when Serial, the big kind of serialized podcast that This American Life did came out. And it was around the time that Apple also put the purple podcast button native on iPhone. So you had this just giant explosion because those two things happened at the same time. And so what I call podcasting 2.0 really took off at that time. And that's when I said to the ABC, look, we're doing a lot of radio that we put out as a podcast, but basically it's just a radio show that is kind of catch up. Um, It's just time shifted. But what was happening overseas was people were creating podcast native or digital only podcasts. So they weren't radio shows. They were made to be podcast native and fit for purpose for the platform because Podcasting is an opt-in experience. It's often, uh, it's not there in the background. A person actually chooses to opt, you know, opt in and put those earbuds in and listen to something. And they're usually listening to something that's very tailored to their needs or wants or desires. So it is a podcast about business or it's a podcast about cricket because you're really into cricket. So I said to the ABC, we need to experiment in this space. And some other people um, at the time were also interested in it. So there were a few early shows that we made and then I just kind of kept pestering until we established ABC Audio Studios and it was the first kind of unit that was just there to make digital first podcasts and of course it sort of exploded because we both made some really great shows because I had some smart people with creative ideas Um, but also it just was the time when podcasting was exploding and more and more people were getting into it. So I both had to be creative because Ultimately, unless the shows are good, no one's going to listen to them. And shows are good because they're creative and surprising and different and unusual. Those are all hallmarks, I hope, of the shows that, you know, have come out under my leadership. But um, I think, you know, I as I moved further up the chain, you're further from the creative process because you're in budget land, you're overseeing, you know, staff and you're having to think about hiring and firing and all of those things. But I still, ultimately, I am a... Um, 
you know, my ears, my creative direction on things is what I'm good at. Um, and so I do did still spend a lot of time going to what we call listening parties where we might have a show to an 80% kind of standard and then I would come in and listen and give feedback on the shows and we'd toss around, oh, this show's not quite working. What do we need to do here? Or, you know, we've done a pilot and the format isn't quite right. How can we change it? Or this, the sound design here just doesn't make any sense. We need to fix it. So I did still get to play a lot in, in what I think I was actually good at, which is, you know, making stuff sound excellent. Um, and I didn't do that in isolation. Absolutely. There were heaps of great people who did the bulk of the work, but to come into it with um, sort of a strategic thinking on what's going to land in the market um, and what's trending out there is something that I could bring because often the creators on the individual shows, they're just kind of focused on just making that show. Whereas I can put my head up and kind of go, okay, this, you know, it's all about scripted podcasts now, fiction podcasts. That's what we need to do. And it needs to sound like this. And I can bring that sort of strategic insight to a project. Mm, and and what, what would you say is the path ahead for podcasting? This is something I'm personally curious about given COVID sort of, given it a next level of acceleration, right, where almost everyone now has their own podcast, whether it be a company or an individual or a, or a platform of some sort. Where do you see the next couple of years in the podcasting space? Do you think there's going to be a shift where the, the ones who really focus are going to separate themselves from the ones who just do it for the sake of having a voice? I think you'll see a couple of things happen. One is the celebrity element to podcasting is absolutely going to take off, um, which sort of makes me sad in some ways because the great thing about podcasting was always it was so democratic, you know, like anyone could have a voice and anyone could do one. And certainly that still will be the case, but there are so many shows now. There's more than a million shows in Apple Podcasts. So you to cut through or for people to know about your show is so much harder and that's why we're seeing, you know, a show with Barack Obama and Bruce Springsteen together be a show that Spotify puts out or, you know, Amy Schumer doing a celebrity show or, you know, Michelle Obama, you know, every celebrity, Hillary Clinton, they've all got a podcast now and that will push some people out because, that can just get scale, that can get giant audience. And so that will mean that the kid who's in Bundaberg in regional Queensland talking about, you know, fishing finds it hard to get an audience. And I think that makes me a little bit sad. Um, I think the other thing you're going to see is podcasting starting to follow the path that Hollywood has established where distinctive formats and intellectual property like IP is going to become really big and so you might develop a format for a show and that can be spun out into a film or a TV show or a book or all of those sorts of things and that's kind of a well-trodden path for other forms of media but I think you're just starting to see the beginning of that happen with podcasting and there are some great examples like um Gimlet did a scripted series called Homecoming and the podcast actually starred David Schwimmer who was in Friends and Catherine Keener but the um, Amazon bought that one I think and turned it into a, a TV series that starred Julia Roberts and so you can see this pipeline from podcast to Hollywood happening um, so I think you'll see a lot more of that Song Explode is another one you know an amazing podcast that's been around actually since fairly early on um, hosted by Rishikesh Herway who's this 
just beautiful interviewer and he now has a Netflix series of the same name, Song Exploder. So I think you'll see more of that connection between podcast and sort of Hollywood. Mm, interesting times ahead. I, I hope it still gives belief to those who are just putting in the work every week and, and putting out an episode and, and just trying to figure out a process ahead. So I hope so. Interesting time. But also, you know, not everyone has to have mass audience either. You just have to have the right audience. You know, the marketer Kevin Kelly famously says you only need a thousand true fans. If those thousand fans are really into what you're doing because it's right in their lane, it's all about, you know, bicycle riding through the Swiss Alps, but there's a thousand people who are fanatic about that. And that's the, that's the audience that you need. You don't need a hundred thousand people listening to your show. So I think there will still be Um, a place for that, but it just might be that people have to accept there's a limit to their audience. The other thing is we're seeing podcasts used by organizations now for sort of internal Mm. communications or brands using it to communicate something. So I see, I think you'll see a little bit more of that. And I've heard of, um, you know, especially during COVID, um, you know, the managing director of organization that normally might've flown all around the United States to visit staff, you know, running Starbucks couldn't do that and so how could how could that MD or that CEO communicate with staff members and actually podcast is a really great way to do it it's authentic it's in their voice staff can opt into it at any time they can listen to it on the train that afternoon or while they're sitting at their desk so it's a great almost like a replacement for the internal newsletter or all those other things that we've been used to in the past. Yeah, well, one of the observations I've had recently being in the podcast space is I think the searchability of podcasts can be limited at times. And that's where I think the the celebrity element cuts through because that's a name that comes up on social media, whereas I've recently discovered podcasts that have been around for a long time and they've got millions of of, um, listeners, but I never knew about it because of the searchability of a podcast platform. Mm-hmm. I think that's something I'm interested in, how companies like Apple and Spotify or whoever's the next company, how that searchability becomes a bit more accessible, I guess, um, particularly given there's so much competition nowadays. Yeah, I think people don't even realise that the, say, the Apple carousel looks different country to country. So it's really hard to crack America if you've got an Australian podcast because you're not even in the American carousel, mm. even if you're featured in Australia. So it is, it's tricky. Um, but I think as we see different territories breaking down or even formats being shared across countries, then you might see more podcasts outside of America who tend to dominate in the podcasting space become a bit more viable. Absolutely. Yeah, interesting times ahead. Now, Kelly, one last question on your hustle before we move on to the final sprint. You've done a lot of cool roles. Is there anything you've done deliberately from a career perspective that you think's helped get to where you are and succeed, whether it be investing in your learning or you talked about mentors earlier or taking on the right experiences? Yeah, I think the mentoring thing is interesting because I probably came to it a bit later in my career, but um, I think I do seek counsel of smart people around me. And so when I'm having to make a decision about, oh, do I want to take this job or this promotion or, you know, work on this project, I will often reach out to those people around me. And some of them are you know, mentors kind of with a capital M that might be two rungs or three rungs above you in the organization, but you think they're pretty fab in some way and you might make a connection with them. But sometimes it's actually just the people around you. So I've, I've had, you know, a really great career at the ABC with some peers. So people that, um, 
you know, might work for me, but kind of came up through the ranks with me um, and, you know, we'll bounce ideas off each other. And so that's always really helpful. I think the other thing is sometimes getting out of your own bubble can be really helpful. So when you've got a challenge in front of you, you tend to ask other people in your organization how to deal with it. But if you move focus and you actually ask a different leader who does it in a different way can just unlock a few ideas which I think is really useful and the other thing you know because now I'm sort of in the more senior part of my career I'm also learning from the people underneath me Um, so that sense of reverse mentoring you know I used to be it's kind of funny at the moment I used to be that young person in the newsroom that knew how to use everything and I knew how to do Twitter and I knew how to do you know write a blog and post it to the internet. Um, Now, you know, I have to say just in the last year or two, I'm feeling like, oh gosh, the kids coming through now, they can do all sorts of interesting (laughs) stuff. Um, What they do on Insta stories is really cool or, you know, what they're doing on Snapchat or whatever. So I'm also learning from other people who are you know, younger than me or less experienced in some realms in terms of their overall career, but have a lot more experience in a certain skill that I want to learn from. So I think that's the other thing that really excites me is learning from, you know, your peers and from the people that perhaps, you know, on an organisational chart are underneath you, but actually um, have a lot to teach you. Now, moving on to the final sprint, Kelly, just a bunch of rapid fire questions to finish off. Um, Is there one investment you've made that you consider the best in your life? Yep, my husband. No question. Um, (laughs) Investing in each other and our time with each other. He's the smartest person that I know. Um, You know, he is, he's also a journalist, but um, I think we have put each other first. Um, And so sometimes, you know, other jobs or opportunities have come up, but you know, for whatever reason we've decided might not be good for the other person or whatever. And I absolutely stand by all of that because the most important thing to me is my family. Um, But he's also just a great, really sharp, insightful thinker on digital journalism and the future of this stuff. So he is also such a great sounding board. You know, some of the most insightful things that we talk about or he he says to me is like at 11 p.m. at night when we finally kind of lie down in bed and talk about the day. Um, so I've been, it's not a monetary investment, but I would say the investment that we've made into our partnership is um, has absolutely paid off for me. Um, one thing you'd like to learn in the next six months? I would say just a little bit more financial forecasting um, okay. would be good so I can plan things out. Um and Anything I think I want Ah, oh, that's a really great question. So last year I in the middle of the pandemic as well, learned to be a yoga teacher and I've been doing yoga pretty religiously for 20 years, but just finally decided I wanted to do invest in some learning for myself and um, some time for myself and that was really fantastic because it forced me to sort of do some learning and and you know, connect with some different types of people who weren't work people and weren't my close friends and weren't my family. So I met different people. Um, I learned something about myself. I learned how those principles can apply to life. So that was really fantastic. Um, This year I've taken up hockey for the first time since I was 17. (laughs) So I guess I'm going to be learning how to play a sport again after a very, very long time. Um, So I'm looking forward to that as well. 
I think it shows again that belief you talked about earlier to pick up hockey, which is <laughs> quite a daunting <laughs> sport. So, <laughs> Yeah, I just want to not be injured. That's my goal for the season, get through without an injury. It's a great, great, great goal to have. <laughs> um, is there one quote or person that inspires you in life? So one mantra that I really like, which I have taken from the yoga world, is this sense of stira and sukha. So it's kind of like um, lightness and and um, discomfort. So there's a great um, Indian sage called Patanjali who sort of is credited with codifying yoga and kind of set out these things called the sutras. And one of them is about sukha and stu- – I can't say it now – Hang on, hang on, hang on. Which is stira and sukha. And so it really means like try hard but also relax. Um, Bring effort but with ease. Um, Take control but give up control. It's sort of this sense of balance, like give it your all but then let it up to the universe. And so when I'm really struggling with something or I'm really trying super hard and it's just not happening, sometimes I have to tell myself, look, it's it's effort with ease. You've got to balance your effort with ease. So put in the work but then also just take a step back for a moment and just relax and kind of trust that it's going to work out. And so that sense of stira and sukkah has been really important for me in the last 12 months in particular. And last one, is there one thing you try and do every week to get the best out of yourself mentally and physically? Just get some sleep because I'm terrible on not much sleep. Like there's people who can, (laughs) you know, famously get by on four hours sleep. I can't. And so I do need to get that seven and a half, ideally eight hours sleep. And when I don't do that, if I have a number of nights where I'm staying up late working, I'm just, I don't function well. And I've learned that I'm just not a person who does that. So absolutely. I think in today's world, you definitely need sleep. Otherwise, I think, like you said, we're driving drunk. So Um, that's the end of the show, Kelly. That's the finish line. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm absolutely inspired by the work you do. and, And I wish you all the best for the future. Keep in touch. Thank you so much. And again, congratulations. 30 episodes is just um, really, really great. So many podcasts fade out. So I think you've done an excellent I hope you took away some actionable insights and learnings from this conversation to apply to your lives and be 1% better every day. And I look forward to sharing the next episode with you next Tuesday. Stay tuned.